Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From MotoWeek.net, it's the MotoWeek Podcast with your host, Wilson. Well, hello and welcome to MotoWeek. My name is Wilson. Thank you so much for listening to the only MotoGP show on the internet that's officially declaring 2022 the year of Ducati. After trying unsuccessfully for so long to match the efforts of legends like Casey Stoner and Troy Bayless and win either a MotoGP or a World Superbike Championship, something that hadn't happened since 2007 and 2008 respectively, they finally not just accomplished one, but both with Alvaro Bautista taking the World Superbike title a matter of days after Peko Bagnaia captured his first ever MotoGP championship. I'm not quite sure what kind of party the brass at Ducati put on, but it's going to be a relatively big one. Pretty sure about that. Now, we've already talked about Peko, but what a great accomplishment for Alvaro Bautista. I mean, this guy toiled away for years in MotoGP, showing a little bit of potential here and a little bit of potential there, but never being able to put an entire season together that would get him the bike that he needed to really show what he was able to do. So he leaves MotoGP after trying to make a play for the factory team that wasn't going to happen. Ducati says, you know what, come over here to World Superbike. Then he ends up bouncing back and forth between Ducati and Honda in somewhat controversial fashion, comes back around this year, and, you know, really with time running out in his career, he's 37 years old, he finally gets the title he had been dreaming of to go, of course, with that 125cc World Championship that he scored 16 years ago. And I'm sure at that point, You've won this championship, and then you go 16 years without getting close to another one, although we got close a couple of years back in World Superbike. But you go 16 years without winning another championship, you're in your upper 30s, you're probably thinking it's never going to happen again. So to be able to do that and be the first Ducati rider since a legend in Troy Bayless to pull that off in World Superbike... That's a great accomplishment. So it's definitely been a banner year for Ducati, but that's not exactly what we're here to talk about on this episode. Instead, our focus is not going to be on the year of Ducati, but rather next year, 2023. MotoGP, of course, has already kicked things off for next season with last week's open test in Valencia, giving us a preliminary glimpse of some of next year's machinery and a good look at a lot of riders moving to new bikes and new teams. And even though this was just a single-day test, there was a lot to unpack in that short session. We had a mix of some genuine enthusiasm, some very blunt opinions, and maybe just a little tiny bit of subterfuge as teams and riders look to give up a little something, but not too much about what they were really feeling and thinking in this first official test heading towards 2023. And, you know, to be honest, it is difficult to decipher 
exactly which parts of what we saw and heard were completely real and what may have been a little bit of sandbagging to the media. But on the show today, we're going to try to separate out some of it. We'll also talk about some of the new parts and improvements each manufacturer brought to the table and what they did or didn't end up accomplishing. And of course, we're going to discuss all of the newbies, of which there are quite a few. You've got Jack and Joanne and every single Alex, uh, seven riders in total moving to different bikes, along with our only rookie, Moto2 champ, Augusto Fernandez, who I can already predict is officially my preseason favorite for rookie of the year. You can pretty much book that one now. Now, in addition to that, we are going to talk a little bit of MotoGP news, not a whole lot. And I had intended to do a full comment section, but then once I got done kind of making my notes for this Valencia test, it's going to be a long show. So I think what we're going to do is split things up and then I'll do another show just with your comments. And then there's one extra news story that just came out today that we really don't have enough information to talk about yet. So I'll put that on the comment show as well. And I'll tell you what that is at the end. Um, All right. Before we get started, I would like to invite you over to the website at motoweek.net. You can find all of the latest episodes there as soon as they're released. You can follow on Twitter at motoweek. No, I don't have a blue check mark. And no, I'm never going to pay for a blue check mark. I'm a little offended that nobody else paid the $8 for the blue check mark to impersonate the show. Guess that tells me something. Um, you can also follow on Instagram at MotoWeekUSA, but most importantly, leave your comments. We have a lot to go over already, but I would love to see more. You can post those on Facebook at facebook.com slash MotoWeek.net or over on the very active Reddit sub at r slash MotoWeek. Subscribe to that sub while you're there as well. And if you do want to support the show, you can do that on Patreon at patreon.com slash MotoWeek. Links to everything I just talked about can be found whenever you want them on the website at MotoWeek.net. All right, so next up is the rundown. This is a list of just about everything we're going to talk about on this episode of the show, which is going to start with a little bit of MotoGP news because there was an official announcement from MotoGP about some new regulations heading into 2023, including an aerodynamic change but not the one I was hoping for. So I'll tell you what the changes are and what I think of them coming up in just a minute here. Then we'll move on to last week's Valencia test. We'll start with the results, which really don't mean a whole lot. Then we'll move on to the manufacturers, which do mean a whole lot. We'll talk about some of the new parts that were rolled out, who had new bikes and who didn't, along with some rider opinions, and then how I think each manufacturer did. Then we'll discuss the newbies, Riders changing teams for next season. I'll tell you how they did or how I think they did. And I'll tell you about a couple of riders in that group that I think will have a sizable impact on their organization heading into 2023. Uh, That'll wrap things up for this part of the show. Of course, we'll have another show coming up with the comments. It doesn't sound like a whole lot, but trust me, it is. So let's get started. Uh, We'll kick things off with the MotoGP news. And the only thing I really want to talk about here are the new regulations heading into 2023. And it's not really a big surprise to see some new rules pop up coming out of really any given MotoGP season. This year, no exception. In addition to some procedural stuff to address how shortened races and points are handed out in Moto2 and Moto3, if we have another situation with multiple red flags, There were also some rules announced that affect the premier class, starting with the sprint races. Now, next year, we're going to have a sprint race on Saturday that's half distance of the full GP held Sunday. And along with that, a limited number of points will be awarded Saturday that 
for some reason won't count towards a rider's career stats. There'll be a separate category for that, but they very much will count towards the 2023 MotoGP World Championship. So the sprint race is coming on Saturday. That race, of course, much shorter. And so the allotment for fuel will be different as well. Each bike will be given 12 liters of fuel that they can use. Uh, That shouldn't be a problem at all since the sprint races are half distance and the maximum fuel capacity for Sunday is 22 liters. So they're giving teams a little bit more than half of the amount of fuel they would have for a full race. And I would kind of think that that was done on purpose because logic would dictate that if it's half distance and you have a nice even number of 22 liters for the main race, that they would lop that in half as well and make it 11. Well, I think this was done purposely because teams at the end of races sometimes or in the middle of races sometimes suggest a fuel mapping to their rider. More often than not, that fuel mapping is trying to accomplish one of two things, either saving the tires a little bit or more likely making sure they have enough fuel to get to the end of the race. And so you have to conserve somewhere. If they give the teams a little bit more than half the amount of fuel for a half distance race, then that would encourage all of the various teams and riders to use a higher or their highest power tune for a majority of the sprint races to help make them more exciting. So that makes sense. Uh, From a technical standpoint, manufacturers will be allowed to design and use a limited capacity tank to meet that 12 liter specification Or they can also use another means of limiting the capacity of a normal tank. Uh, They don't say whether that means may simply be putting 12 liters of fuel into a 22 liter tank, but I don't think it matters. I fully expect each manufacturer will come up with a separate design for the fuel tank in a sprint race because 12 liters may not sound like a lot of fuel, But it's pretty dense and it weighs a decent amount. Uh, 12 liters equates to about 11 and a half kilograms or just over 25 pounds for those of us inexplicably still in the King system. Um, And no engineer is going to pass up the opportunity to decide precisely where that 11 and a half kilograms or 25 pounds is going to be placed on the bike to maximize performance. So I think everybody is going to design a special sprint race tank so they can have complete control over where they place that weight on the bike to maximize performance. So that was the first announcement. The second one, shockingly, there is an aerodynamic change for next season. When I first read that there was going to be, I thought, oh my gosh, we've finally gotten here. We're not going to do the Formula One thing. We're not going to go down that path. Well, Now, this announcement isn't nearly as exciting or substantial as I would have liked it to be. Instead, this change pertains solely to the swing arm spoon, or swinglet as I like to call it, uh, the part that sticks down in front of the rear tire. It can now be no lower to the tarmac than 35 millimeters off the deck. Uh, Previously, it was 20 millimeters, and it's not even for any aerodynamic reason, but because at 20 millimeters... Somebody this year had a swinglet separate from their bike going over the rumble strips, and so it was really more of a safety decision. Now, the final two rules are safety-related as well. The first of those, there's going to be a new zipper system for leathers starting next year. I referred to this as the Fabio Quattraro rule, and they actually did in their release specifically mention 
that incident, although they didn't name names for some reason, like we didn't know it was Fabio Quattraro they were talking about. They said a rider had a zipper come down, so that's why they're changing it. That is the motivation. They went back to the leather manufacturers and apparently came up with a more secure fastening system for the zippers. All riders are going to be required to use it, regardless of who makes their leathers. In addition to that, the FIM is phasing in a new helmet standard, although both riders and manufacturers are going to have quite a while to make the switch. They can still use the current standard all the way up until 2026. At that point, you'll have to use the new and presumably higher standards. So if I were a rider, I would switch to that right now. Um, Both those things, of course, are welcomed improvements. I really don't see anything negative with really any of the new rules, even if the arrow changes, in my opinion, should have been much more sweeping. And hold that thought, because we'll come back to that a few minutes down the road when we get to one of the manufacturers in this test. Um, And speaking of the test, let's move on now to the main event for this episode of the show, the Valencia MotoGP test. And before we dive into what happened here, How awesome is it that this test is back after a few years' absence? Uh, For those of you who are newer to MotoGP, it used to be a long-standing tradition that immediately after the conclusion of the season in Valencia, there was a test where we got to see all of the riders in their new leathers with their new teams kicking off not only the off-season, but also speculation about which bikes and riders might be the early favorites for the coming year. Well, that test had been taken off the schedule the past few seasons as really part of general testing cutbacks in the wake of an ever-expanding in-season race schedule, as well as a way to help keep extraneous costs in check during COVID. But thankfully, it was brought back. And I think it wasn't just a matter of convenience either. I mean, everybody is in Valencia already for the race and the awards ceremony, But also because it really was so popular with the fans. At least that's what I want to think is one of the reasons that they brought it back. I mean, there was a lot of resulting pop with both the press and on social media. And we saw that this year as well. And let's not be naive here. I mean, Dorna wants to capitalize on that buzz at the end of the season. So in my mind, it was because it was popular with the fans. In their mind, it might be because they could make some money off of it. But in this case, I'm cool with Dorna's overwhelming desire to cash in because it gives us back the most fun test of the season, in my opinion, since everyone knows that there's plenty of time to make changes between now and next February. You you get this much more relaxed atmosphere. We get full coverage since the world feed cameras and commentators are already in place. And we end up with lots of stuff to talk about to get us through two plus long months of zero action on track. And that being said, let's talk about what happened last Tuesday in Valencia. Although I do want to give the standard disclaimer here. And I don't know if other shows do this because I don't really listen to other shows, but I do it all the time. And I'm sorry if it annoys the longtime listeners, but this was a test and only a test. And on top of that, just the first test before a long layoff and then another test in Sepang that is going to be much more serious. And as such, we really can't take anything super concrete from this. And I'll bring that idea up a couple of times again, because especially as I alluded to before, nobody really wants to show their hand yet. So, you know, we're going to talk about comments, but 
I'm not sure whether all of the riders were being perfectly straight with us, or if all of the manufacturers brought their best parts to this, or if one or more or everybody involved was simply trying to throw everybody else off the trail with what they were up to or what kind of real improvements have been made. That being said, it is a heck of a lot of fun to speculate on these results and what they might mean, and so that's precisely what we're going to do. Uh, as well as talking about some of the more interesting parts each manufacturer brought to the table. Before we get to each one of those manufacturers, though, let's go over the results. Uh, just the top 10 on the timesheet in this test. It was led by Luca Marini, believe it or not, on the VR46 GP22 bike. Second overall, Maverick Vinales on a 2022-ish type of bike. Marco Bezecchi was third, also on a GP22 then we got Miguel Oliveira and Ale Chispagro, both on Aprilias that were mostly based in this year. Fabio De Gian Antonio on a GP22. Then four new bikes. Brad Binder, seventh on a brand new KTM. Jorge Martin, eighth on the new Ducati. Fabio Quattraro, ninth overall on the new Yamaha. And then Enea Bastianini rounded out the top 10 on a brand new Ducati, along with brand new red leathers as well. And now I pointed out what bike each one of those riders was primarily riding in this test. And there was a reason for that, because it's not a very big surprise that a majority of the riders at the top of the timesheet were working with this year's bikes or something very close to it. Of the top six riders on that chart, they were all either riding GP22s, which of course was the bike that just won the championship and the Triple Crown, or they were riding Aprilia's. And those guys were working on a modified version of this year's bike. They already told us that the full 2023 offering won't be ready until Sepang in February. Now, there was also Miguel Oliveira in that group as well on the RNF Aprilia. He really made a lot of waves, and we'll talk about some of those headlines in a few moments, finishing fourth on the timesheet. I'm not exactly sure if he was on a massage version, an intermediary version of the RSGP, similar to Maverick Vinales and Alicia Spagro, or if he was just on a straight-up 2022 model, since he was just trying to learn the bike. But it doesn't really matter, because whether he was on the latest or the current, they're still all based on the 2022, and that would line up with the idea that all of the riders at the top weren't on next-generation equipment quite yet. Um, now, there were a couple of riders, Jack Miller being one of them, that specifically said they did not go out for a time attack. In his case, he said he was out of soft tires at the end, so he didn't have anything to go out there and try to match those top times with. But it's absolutely possible that multiple riders didn't do a time attack, either because that wasn't on their test schedule Maybe like Jack Miller, they ran out of tires or they said they ran out of tires, or maybe they specifically didn't want to show their hand at this early stage. You know, if you're talking about an ideal situation for a manufacturer, they would really prefer that their riders establish themselves firmly at the top of the time chart in the very last test when there really isn't time left for their competitors to react and go back to the drawing board and come up with something better. You, know, you show up in Valencia and you're doing something that is just on another level from everyone else. And they've got two and a half plus months to go sit around and try and decipher what you were up to and try to duplicate that themselves. So it stands to reason that the riders on already proven 2022 equipment 
didn't have as much to keep close to the vest, hence they had the top lap times. So that's how they line themselves up at the end of the day. But far more interesting are the things each manufacturer was working on and what the riders thought of those new parts. And I want to start with Yamaha because they arguably had the highest expectations coming into this test with the promise of a new engine that even Fabio Quattraro himself said earlier in the year in Misano was noticeably faster than what they'd been working with for the past couple of years. And it was the deal. It was the thing that put Quattraro over the top and made him agree to stay with Yamaha for two more years. Of course, that was also complicated by the fact that Suzuki was going away and there would be two less grid spaces to work with and two more riders to compete with on the free agent market. But for the most part, we can say that Yamaha sat down and said to Fabio, if we give you a bigger motor, if we give you a more powerful motor, rather, will you stick around? And he said yes. And it seemed like they had that coming into this test. The only problem was that trend did not hold true in Valencia. And, you know, whether it was the specific layout at the Ricardo Tormo circuit or maybe the track conditions or the specific tires that they had, or it could have been the electronics package that they thought they should bring with this engine to the test. Whatever it was, that feeling that Fabio Quattraro had in Misano didn't replicate itself here. As both Fabio and teammate Franco Morbidelli said that they didn't feel the improvements in power delivery that they had at the previous test. And of course, that led Fabio to look and sound a little bit disappointed, a little bit confused, and that generally made everybody reporting on the matter panic a little bit. And I'll talk about whether they should be panicking right now or not in a moment. But first, I want to talk about everything else that Yamaha brought to the table because there was more on offer than just that engine. Not only a chassis upgrade, but the biggest change visually came in the form of an aero package that was very Ducati-like. Now, they had multiple packages they worked with, but one looked exactly like Ducati. Big box section wings up at the top, smaller wings on the side and the mid-fairing, and they even had the Stegosaurus tail, although that design was closer to the one that Honda used the last few rounds of the season than the actual Ducati fins. Now, Fabio tested out that package, and when it came to the fins on the back, he said, I don't know if they did a lot, But they also didn't upset the bike either, so he was fine with those. Um, Predictably, the verdict was out, though, on the balance of the bike with those big boxy wing sections up front. You know, he was wondering if the downforce was a decent trade-off for the potential top speed hit that they would take. And if they weren't feeling a whole lot extra out of the engine, then at least when it came to Valencia, they might have thought that that wasn't a good enough trade-off to make. But again, it all comes back to the motor because if that engine does indeed at the next test have the power they're expecting out of it, well, then it would more easily be able to overcome the extra drag from a big boxy wing up at the front of the bike, however ugly it might look. But that then brings us back to the main protagonist here for Yamaha, the engine. And I would think that, you know, the new arrow may have added some confusion surrounding the engine situation because that Ducati setup does add a lot more drag on the bike, but they were also using that engine with their old aerodynamic setup, their current aerodynamic setup from 2022 as well. And they were experiencing the same issues, if you can call them issues. The very interesting part here though, is that 
Both factory riders agreed that the 2023 engine was more powerful in the past. And on top of that, Cal Crutchlow had done a pair of independent tests with the new motor. And after those sessions, he called the new engine a rocket. So, of course, the fact that they weren't feeling that same difference here in Valencia is a bit perplexing. But there are so many factors that could have affected it. It could just be down to tuning or how Yamaha thought they needed to implement the electronics for this particular track. Overall, though, should Yamaha panic that the riders weren't getting what they were expecting and the feedback was mediocre at best because of it? No, I don't think they should panic. I am not terribly worried about Fabio and Franco's lack of feel with the new engine or the fact that their top speeds were back to being way down on the Ducati. Why? Well, because at Misano, they were much, much closer. Now, if we get to Sepang in February, and if the same issue is there, where acceleration and top speed are far more critical, well, then they've got a problem. But considering that every other test has gone well for this motor, I don't think Yamaha needs to be in panic mode. At least the riders don't need to be in panic mode. The engineers, well, they got to go back to the drawing board and find out what exactly the difference was in every other test before Valencia and Valencia. But even though I'm not a MotoGP engineer, it doesn't matter. That kind of troubleshooting isn't all that difficult. Because you have multiple instances where it performed one way, and you had one instance where it performed a different way. And obviously, you've been cataloging all of the changes between the last time it was run and this Valencia test should be pretty simple to isolate which one of those changes might have had a detrimental effect or which combination of changes might have had that negative effect and then fix them for Sepang. So... I don't think that Yamaha is really in any kind of danger right now of having botched their offseason. I think they're in decent shape. I'm not necessarily sure I can say the same thing for Honda, though. <laughs> Let's talk about them, because they seem to be in full-on panic mode Tuesday, at least based on what Mark Marquez said after the test. Uh, the factory had a lot of parts on offer for Mark and all of the various Suzuki people that came over to their side of the garage. Although I'm not sure how much of the 2023 stuff Alex Rins and Joanne Mir saw, I would imagine that it was Mark and Takanakagami who did the lion's share of the testing when it came to evaluating all of those new parts. Uh, there was a new chassis on offer, new swing arm, brakes, exhaust, uh, in addition to the new engine, some very interesting aero, where it looks like Honda also took a page out of the Ducati playbook, adding a pod to the lower part of the fairing, although Honda's has an opening on the side of it, kind of like a NACA duct that funnels some of the air along the side of the bike instead of really redirecting a majority of it down like the Ducati design does. The problem is, all of those shiny new parts that they brought to the table didn't leave Marc Marquez going away impressed. Quite the opposite, in fact. He was surprisingly blunt in his assessment of the upgrades, saying that they don't go nearly far enough to make the difference that he's looking for and that Honda, in his opinion, needs, quote, one or two steps more, end of quote, if they want to be able to fight for a title. Now, normally I wouldn't be too concerned by some Honda test comments. 
I mean, those guys are known for not really giving up the goods in those types of interviews. But there are a couple of things that are a little bit different than normal about this test. Honda, and especially, especially Mark Marquez, are known more for being cagey in their post-race comments rather than blatantly trying to draw people off the path. You know, when they have a really good hand, typically what they do is downplay it. They just don't say a whole lot. They don't go into specifics. In this case, though, it was the opposite. Mark was very vocal about what they weren't doing and what they needed to do. And unlike what we were just talking about a moment ago with Yamaha, it's not a situation where this test sticks out as the anomaly. I mean, with Yamaha, they have multiple tests where the engine felt great, and then suddenly something went wonky this one time, right? In this case, Honda wasn't taking a step back from earlier tests. They never took the step forward to begin with. And that is what Mark was pointing out. He was like, hey, we haven't made nearly as much progress as we should have by this point. We've got to up our game and take a couple of major steps in the right direction. So... There is something here, in my opinion, for Mark and for Honda to be concerned about, like legitimately concerned about. And that's compounded, I think, by the fact that Joanne Mir and Alex Rins are brand new to the bike, so they're not going to have too much of a frame of reference to try and improve it based on what it used to be. And, you know, while Takanakagami's input is informational, it's not going to be revolutionary because he isn't at the same level as those other three riders. So, you know, Honda is in a bit of a sticky situation right now, but there is still plenty of time here because let's face it, it's much better for Mark Marquez to be very vocal and say, we need to take a step or two forward right now than if he had made those types of comments, say, in Qatar right before the year is about to start. So them realizing the situation isn't as far along as it should be. And as lost as Honda has been over the past year or two, I fully expect them to bring their A game over the break and come up with some real improvements. Even if they have to go backwards a bit in terms of maybe chassis or ideas to find a baseline and then move forward in the end. So On a scale of, say, 1 to 10 on the panic meter, I would put Yamaha at, like, a 4. There's a little bit of concern because things went off the rails based on what they expected at Valencia, but they still have a lot of positive to work with. Honda, however, I'd have them at, like, a 6 or a 7. They have to focus here over the next two months and come back with something substantial for that Sepang test. So those two manufacturers really were the standouts in terms of what we expected to see from them based on the reality of what we got and whether there should be any concern or not. Then we move on to Ducati, who is, like I said at the beginning of the show, kind of in their happy space right now, right? And as we talked about, they had quite a few riders out there looking very good on those championship winning GP22s, which is to be expected. But the factory and the Pramac riders, they did already have a new bike to work with. Although that bike, as Peko Bagnaya put it, was more of an evolution of the GP22, more than a revolution, which would have been this year's bike in comparison to the GP21. And, you know, if we're being honest here, that's probably the right move. 
not every year has to be a drastic departure, especially when you're coming off of a triple crown performance that you ended up achieving purely through a ton of work because those guys did struggle a little bit early in the season with that revolutionary new bike. So I'm sure the philosophy there is, hey, we jumped off this cliff to get to the GP22. Let's not go back to the drawing board. We had a lot of success with this. Let's kind of gently push this bike into 2023 with some new parts. Therefore, trying to hit the ground running a little bit faster next season and reinforce the fact that they have the championship favorites, maybe not give anybody as much of a chance or not have to come back from behind like they did this year. I mean, why go all the way back to the beginning again when you can capitalize on a solid formula you already have in place? But even though they are just continuing along that same path, there were, of course, plenty of new parts, starting with a new engine, along with a new chassis, and then, of course, it would not be Ducati if they didn't have some sort of new aero components to play around with. And as for those aero changes, Peko wasn't quite sold on them yet. He said that he actually felt the effects of the wind more with the experimental package that they rolled out. But he couldn't draw a definitive conclusion. He said he wanted to wait until Sepang to make a more thorough assessment because that track really will give you a better idea of aerodynamics because it's a higher speed track. Uh, He did say that the new engine felt very similar in character to the GP22. But then, in very classic Honda-like fashion, didn't really expand too much on whether it was a notable improvement or not. Just that it was similar to the GP22. And that led me to think he was probably satisfied with it and didn't want to let everybody know that maybe they had even more horsepower that they could play with, or more importantly, more tractable horsepower, better power delivery that they could work with. Um, now, looking past those factory riders and the Pramac riders, of course, you had the gaggle of people on GP22s continuing to look strong with those developed machines. Only one new addition for next season. That's former Honda rider Alex Marquez, who, despite not being able to match his qualifying time on the LCR Honda from the weekend before, and we'll talk more about those numbers in a few minutes, he was clearly enthusiastic about the GP22. Now, for contractual reasons, he couldn't comment on the differences between the two bikes, but it was clear that he preferred his new ride to his old one. And, you know, that's great because... I can't imagine what it's been like for him living in the shadow of his brother the past few years, even at the times where Mark hasn't been on track. I really feel like he's been living in the shadow of his brother. So it's good for Alex to be able to strike out on his own path, try to do something independent of his future legend of a brother, even if at this stage in his career... Little Marquez is clearly in the Jean Zarco zone when it comes to future opportunities to move up. He's not going to be on a factory team probably ever again. But that's fine, because if he can follow that same path that Zarco did and have similar results, he could still have a great MotoGP career ahead of him for several years. So, like I said, we'll talk more about him and the other riders moving to different manufacturers here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, First, I want to move on to Aprilia, who was in an interesting situation coming in into this test because despite the leap in progress they made coming into the year, they're actually being a bit conservative heading into the off season. 
And Francesco Gadotti had already made it clear that they wouldn't have a true 2023 bike until February in Sepang. That's a decision that you could debate whether it's smart or not. But we have to remember, at the time that they chose to push the new bike until next February, they were still in the thick of a championship battle. And so for a manufacturer in their first season running everything in-house and with limited resources at their disposal compared to the likes of Ducati and Yamaha, that was very likely a tactical decision to try to keep them in the mix and try and keep Alex Chespagro with a chance for as long as possible. And heck, he came all the way down to the final race of the season, mathematically being in it, right? In hindsight, of course, they probably should have stayed focused on next season with their major engineering and development efforts. But that's easy to say after the fact, right? I absolutely do not blame them for that strategy with as well as Alicia Spagro was riding in the middle of the year. They didn't want to give up the opportunity to potentially win a championship. And that's perfectly understandable. Now, as we know, the season didn't end the way they wanted to. As a result, well, Aprilia not only came away without a rider in the top three in the standings at the end of the season, but also with no fully fleshed out 2023 bike, leading Espagro to suggest that the test was actually a bit of a waste for them in the end. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that assessment. I don't think that's entirely accurate since Aprilia did have at least some items for the riders to test out. There was an updated, although not really new, engine as well as a new chassis, but that frame really wasn't a major testing point. Maverick Vinales had already been running it the final few rounds of the season, so they were just adding to that data, maybe getting Alation on it a little bit more as opposed to you know forging into new territory. But in addition to those major components, the previously introduced frame and then the updated massaged engine, there was also a new swing arm on offer, and that was something which the usually curmudgeonly Alesh actually admitted to liking after this test. So see, it wasn't all of wash for them. Um, but without a full-on 2023 bike, Aspargo said that the main goal for Aprilia in this test was finding a bit more mid-corner grip, even though this year's Aprilia was already pretty good handling the start, as well as trying to coax some more power and acceleration out of the low end of the motor. Um, with RNF coming on board, this test also proved valuable as an onboarding opportunity to get that team and those engineers acclimated to working with a completely different bike than they were used to. And it also allowed them to bring two new riders in for next season, both of whom, of course, they inherited from KTM. Raul Fernandez was pretty enthusiastic about the change to the Italian manufacturer, and for good reason. We'll talk about the numbers here in a minute. But the big buzz this test was definitely surrounding his new teammate in Miguel Oliveira, who was fourth on the speed chart in this test. And that grabbed a lot of people's attention. We'll talk about whether it should have or not in a couple of minutes, but I did find something strange here that I couldn't quite figure out. I mean, Miguel Oliveira clearly had a good test. And he landed right up near the top of the speed chart. But his post-race comments were super reserved. And he didn't seem to be blown away by the RSGP or terribly enthusiastic about anything at all involving it. Now, 
I don't know, maybe he was trying to downplay things to keep expectations low or to divert some attention away from him since he was in the top five on the speed chart. But it just didn't seem like he was terribly impressed. And, you know, if you're Aprilia and you're bringing this new team in as a satellite, you're bringing these new riders in, that's not really the reaction that you're looking for. You want some buzz, you want some enthusiasm, you want some excitement. And that's not to say that riders should be like cheerleaders for their team no matter what. But when you see guys like Alex Marquez or Pola Spagro genuinely and outwardly excited about their new opportunity, and even, you know, Oliveira's teammate Raul Fernandez was pretty excited, then you don't want somebody to be the stick in the mud there. You want some momentum that all of these new people coming on board can use to get them through this break, and then they'll come back at Sepang and be able to draw off of that, right? So, yeah, there are multiple headlines about Miguel Oliveira being poised for this breakout season, but, you know, one test and his surprisingly sedate demeanor leave me a bit hesitant to call for a career year out of Oliveira. And make no mistake, that's despite the fact that I am a fan You know, I just think it's a bit premature at this point to take this one result from this one test when everybody else is working on their 2023 bikes and say, oh my gosh, this is going to be like a new championship contender or something like that. And some people did go that far. I'm not in that ballpark yet. We'll see what we get later on. Um, Now let's talk about the final manufacturer since Suzuki has bailed on us. I'm still mad at them about that. Uh, KTM and their new affiliate Gas Gas, who is just a another KTM brand, but it is technically going to be a factory effort. Obviously, it's not a separate manufacturing effort. So in all of our discussions, we're going to refer to KTM and Gas Gas as one entity. Um, And by contrast to the last couple of manufacturers we just talked about, those guys did bring a 2023 bike. And of course, as is traditional for them, in addition to that bike, they brought a lot of other new parts to the table for this one, at least as it pertains to their lead rider and only returning rider, Brad Bender. Um, Bender specifically pointed out that, yeah, they brought a lot of stuff for me and they brought some arrow and I worked through a lot of different parts here. Jack Miller got to work with the new bike as well. Although it's safe to assume that he didn't test out nearly as many new bits as Brad as, you know, Jack was just trying to acclimate himself to the RC-16. The main focus, though, and this is what I want to hone in on here, the main focus of the new setup, without going into all of the different individual parts, was to cure their biggest problem from last season, which is a bit of a foreign concept to someone like, say, Yamaha working on major issues. But it's really not a bad idea when you think about it. Maybe they should, you know, take a hint from KTM. Um, But their biggest struggle the past year or year and a half or so has been with tires. The bike really likes a harder compound than is sometimes preferred. And so when they go with that preferred softer tire, they tend to struggle, especially when it comes to qualifying on Saturdays. So one of the aims of their new chassis and swing arm combo is to manage the weight distribution of the bike better to allow them a wider tire selection really throughout the weekend, but especially as it pertains to qualifying one of their perpetual weak spots. And of course, that is a very important thing for KTM to focus on. So they're in the right mindset heading into next year. But that wasn't the only item on the testing slate. 
there was one other thing that they weren't just going to work on in Valencia, but they were going to continue working on in the offseason across the break that we're going to talk about here in a second. Because for me, it's a bit concerning. But before I tell you what that thing is, let's discuss their new riders. Because, of course, they have three incoming, including the only rookie in the MotoGP field for next season. Um, Jack Miller, of course, is the most notable of that group heading to the factory team. And despite being notably slower on the KTM than he was on the Ducati, he felt that he adapted to this bike more easily than he thought he would. And I think that's understandable because KTM has always been accused of being a bike that you really have to flog to get the best out of. And that's kind of in line with both the Ducati and I think it generally matches Jack's style, the way he's always ridden. So I think that he was off to a good start. Uh, the numbers really don't matter there. Moto2 champ Augusto Fernandez took his first shot ever on a premier class bike. And that's always the coolest thing to see. Because no matter what a Moto2 rider thinks they're going to get when they hop on that MotoGP bike for the first time, it still manages to blow away those expectations. And the other riders, I'm sure, on track managed to blow away their expectations. And Fernandez was suitably impressed with the incredible power of the gas gas. And even though he didn't specifically comment on the braking, typically for riders that have never been on MotoGP bikes before, the braking performance is just as eye-opening as the engine power and more difficult to master. Because it's pretty easy to thwack open the throttle and hang on for dear life, but trusting those brakes at the last possible second, that's really what you have to convince yourself to be able to do. And so that's usually where the transition is most difficult for a new Moto2 rider. But it's always awesome to see somebody come into the series who's never been in that position before and then see the genuine like beaming smile on their face when they come back from their first run out. Um, but it was fellow gas gas rider Pola Spagaro that was definitely the most animated, not just at KTM, but maybe in this whole test, being notably pleased with his return trip to KTM after struggling for two years at Honda, even being caught on camera mouthing the words, it's awesome, to his team, his team engineers, after coming back into the box after his first or second run. Uh, he was one of just two riders switching teams to outpace his qualifying time in the season finale. What that means for next season, that remains to be seen. But for the time being, KTM looks to have gotten a really big boost in both enthusiasm and potential performance across their entire lineup. I mean, I would say they had the most encouraging test outside of maybe Ducati overall, because those guys, of course, performed better. But in terms of bringing together new equipment, new riders, and the promise of increased performance, I think KTM may have taken the entire test. And I know I'm bullish on these guys, no pun intended with Red Bull, but look out for KTM next year. Because if they can close the gap on soft tires and put themselves higher on the grid on a consistent basis, bringing in Jack Miller, bringing back Paul Espagro, I think it's going to have a positive benefit for the entire team, especially Brad Bender, who can walk out from under the gloomy clouds that were surrounding him with all those riders that wanted out and instead work with a group of riders that genuinely wants to be there. So we'll have to see how they bring everything together in Sepang and if they can 
up their game in terms of performance on the on the time chart. But right now, I think they're in a very good position. So that's what all of the teams were up to last Tuesday. But I also want to talk a little bit about the riders switching manufacturers because it's always entertaining to see how they adapt to their new situation. And in a silly season that didn't involve Yamaha at all, and that Ducati pretty much handled in-house, there were still a surprising number of riders on the move. And we're going to review these guys in the order of their best lap time on their new bike in the test compared to their qualifying time on their old bike, Valencia Race Weekend. So we're not going from top to bottom where they landed on the timesheet, although for a couple of riders I will mention where they landed on the timesheet. But what I'm doing is comparing their best lap on the new bike with their best lap from the previous weekend, from the race weekend, on their old bike a few days before that, realizing that it's not a great direct comparison, it's just kind of a relative thing here, and also realizing that some riders had bigger adjustments to make than others, some may have had parts to test, new parts to test, some might not have, and some riders may not have even done an organized time attack because they were so focused on just simply learning their new bike. Uh, But that being said... Let's start with the riders switching bikes by focusing in on Raul Fernandez, who, believe it or not, was the best performer comparison-wise between his old bike and his new one, posting a time 0.258, a quarter of a second faster on the RNF Aprilia as compared to his previous Tech 3 KTM. Now, I think it's important to point out that the bar was set pretty low here with the KTM. So everything is relative. Uh, He was 21st overall on the speed chart, even with that improvement. However, it is good to see him looking at least a bit more comfortable right away on the Aprilia. And Raul, in my opinion, he's got a lot of pressure on him right now. He has a lot to prove next season because He wasn't just the biggest rookie flop last year. He was probably one of the biggest rookie flops in recent MotoGP history after looking so dominant in Moto2. You know, after the signing controversy at the end of his Moto2 season, he came in with very little enthusiasm, didn't perform out of the gate, then blamed it all on the bike and the team, and he essentially gave up, suggesting that He deserved better in MotoGP when he hadn't done anything yet to prove that he deserved it. And as a perfect, perfect comparison to the situation that Raul Fernandez was in last year, I want you to think about Enea Bastianini, who also won a Moto2 championship and took that title to one of the worst teams in the MotoGP paddock. He made no such representations about deserving something better. He didn't complain about where he was put by Ducati. He simply went about his business and proved over the next two seasons consistently on track that he deserved more opportunity. And of course, that paid off for him very, very big. So he didn't come into the series thinking that he was bigger than any one team or any one manufacturer. Raul Fernandez, and I'm sorry I'm being hard on him, he did do that. Guess what? Now he has the opportunity. He wanted a different bike. He wanted a better bike. He arguably has one. So now we'll get to see what he does with it. Performing a little bit better, that's a start. 
but he's got to really move up the timesheets quickly if he wants to solidify himself as a fixture in the paddock beyond his next contract. Next on the list is Paul Espagro, who, again, didn't blow away the grid in this test. He was only 16th fastest, but he was clearly thrilled to be back on a familiar KTM, even if it was flying gas gas colors. That resulted in a best time that was 0.179 seconds better than how he qualified on race weekend aboard the Repsol Honda. Now, Paul was clearly checked out at the end on the Honda. He comes into this gas gas program with quite a bit of enthusiasm, along with his vast experience. And that's another reason that I think KTM are putting themselves in good position for next year. I mean, I know I already kind of mentioned this, but all of the outgoing riders at that organization were either disgruntled, lacked experience, or both. And the aforementioned Raul Fernandez is an example of both of those characteristics. And I think that that eroded any team spirit or excitement from what they were doing each race weekend. And and hold on to that thought, because I'm going to bring that back in a minute when we talk about Jack Miller. Uh, first, though, I want to talk about one of the other outgoing KTM riders who had plenty of experience, but he certainly fell into the disgruntled category. Although he did grab a ton of headlines coming out of this race, may have been the most talked about rider coming out of this race outside of maybe Fabio Quattraro and Mark Marquez with their comments. Of course, I'm referring to Miguel Oliveira who, in his RNF Aprilia debut, was actually a little bit slower than he was on the Red Bull bike by 0.131 seconds. But the time that he posted was also fourth on the overall timesheet. And not only was that result right in there with the fully developed GP22s at the top of the charts, but also in line with the factory Aprilia riders. He was just a few spots below Maverick Vinales. He was one ahead of Alex Espagaro, And of course, that set the media ablaze with predictions of an Oliveira breakthrough. Like I mentioned a few moments ago, I'm not convinced quite yet. I'm not sure that Miguel is convinced quite yet based on the energy level of those post-test comments. So I, I don't know. He just wasn't selling it as a dream combination. So I'm inclined to wait and see what we get out of him in February before making any serious predictions how he'll do in 2023. Now, the story was a little bit different for Alex Marquez. His demeanor was much more in line with what we saw out of Paul Espagro as opposed to Miguel Oliveira. He was doing a really poor job of attempting to hide his enthusiasm after getting his first shot ever at a Desmo. His best time was a little bit slower. He was about a quarter of a second slower on the Grissini Ducati as compared to his previous LCR Honda. But it was the feel of the bike and the potential that put a smile on his face. Like I mentioned earlier, he wouldn't make any direct comparisons until he was out of his contract with Honda at the end of the year. But it was clear that he felt he had something more to work with, even if he was on what's going to be a year-old bike. And I don't know. I I don't know performance-wise, season-long, what this change is going to do for Alex Marquez. That is definitely yet to be determined. But this is going to be a very interesting year and a very interesting experiment for Alex because we're talking about somebody who has a direct line to Mark Marquez. So if the performance is there, 
And he's still enthusiastic about the bike going into 2024, the next major silly season and the one where Mark Marquez's contract with Honda is up. Well, that could create some interesting drama should his big brother be looking to finally take on another manufacturer before finishing off his illustrious career. That could sway him in one direction or another, depending on what Honda does next season and what Alex says Ducati is up to. So while I don't view that move as something that's going to be earth-shattering in terms of the standings, it could still be a very, very critical move when it comes to future options for both Ducati and his brother. Now, next up on our list is Joanne Mir, the first of the departing Suzuki riders that we're going to discuss. And he had the somewhat unenviable task of trying to figure out a Repsol Honda that even Mark Marquez says is difficult to ride. That unsurprisingly landed to a top time that was decidedly slower than what he turned in on his former Suzuki over race weekend, nearly seven tenths of a second slower. Now, Mir wasn't terribly discouraged by that, and I'm not either. I mean, my guess is that he was really focused on learning the bike more than laying down a killer lap time. And in the end, his comments were positive. He said that he was generally pleased with his first go on the bike. Now, of course, people are coming out of this test potentially playing up a rivalry this season between Mir and Marquez. You know, if that does happen, I don't think it would really fully develop or become a factor for the team until later next season. For now, I would imagine everyone is focused on improving the spike and giving their input on what direction to go. And honestly, Mir's experience on a very good handling Suzuki should be very valuable in that process. So I would imagine that Mark would be just as interested in what Joanne Mir has to say as Mir does in Mark's experience with the bike and what that means. So I think that there will be a relatively collaborative and cooperative effort for now. But if they get the bike sorted and both start to perform on it, well, yeah, then eventually a rivalry is naturally going to develop. And Mark, as we know, is certainly up for a rivalry. He doesn't look for them, but he's up for one. And Mir, again, doesn't look for rivalries, but he is certainly up for one as well. So I could see that, like I said, happening maybe in the second half of the season if the performance is there for the bike. If it's not, well, I think up until they are able to win races, it's going to be a pretty relaxed, cooperative attitude in that garage. Now, Jack Miller doesn't, I, I don't think, has as much of a challenge to tackle as, say, Joanne Mir because of the legendary difficulty of that Honda right now. But let's face it, this is still a big shift for Jack Miller, going from a triple crown winning GP22 to the much maligned RC-16 that people were clamoring to get off of at the end of the season. Um, as such, he was understandably slower than he was during race weekend as well. His top time was down nearly a second, 0.953, compared to his qualifying time on the Ducati, although Jack specifically said that he did not do a time attack because they ran out of tires. But Jack also wasn't concerned about lap times, and I don't think he should have been. He was focused on getting to know the bike, and in that respect, like I mentioned earlier, he said he was able to adapt more easily than he expected. And that he feels like he understands how he needs to ride this KTM to get the most out of it. And that is by far the most important thing in this test is that 
Jack came out of it understanding the bike and having a bit of feeling with the bike and seeing the potential and being enthusiastic about it. Those are things that have been sorely missing in the KTM garage. So now we're going to pick up on where I left off with Paul because you have Paul Espagro over at Gas Gas with that big smile on his face. And then Jack Miller sounding optimistic in the factory garage. And that is probably an atmosphere that KTM haven't experienced in a long time. And that kind of mood is also going to really give Brad Bender, who has always stood by his team's potential, it's going to give him free license to let his enthusiasm show more and not keep it bottled up because he's got an angry teammate and a couple of angry guys underperforming over at Tech 3. And so I think that really for KTM in this test, it wasn't as much about parts and about the 2023 bike as it was about you know, that enthusiasm and taking the first step to getting a team atmosphere that is equivalent to what they had a couple of years ago. And hell, if you're going to pick a rider that can bring that kind of thing back, it is Jack Miller, who is the consummate teammate. And the fact that Paul Espagro was so over the moon, mostly because he was happy to get out of Honda, that's just icing on the cake. In that respect. Um, and then the last rider that I want to talk about here that was switching manufacturers, of course, was Alex Rins. He was the slowest of the bunch compared to his old bike, lagging a full 1.288 seconds behind on the LCR Honda, what he was able to accomplish on the Suzuki during race weekend. But let's also remember that he was incredible in the race weekend. So the bar there, the perspective definitely comes into play here. Now, Alex said, much like Joanne Mir, that he was generally happy with his new ride. Although I think for both of these riders, there's going to be some natural disappointment that they're not on the Suzuki bike, that they both had no interest in leaving. And clearly there are more issues to work through with the Honda than where they were on that Suzuki. But also like Mir, I'm not really worried about Rins himself. The bike is the bigger deal. And at least now, Honda have put together a lineup that is a massive upgrade over last season in terms of potential performance, and they can use that talent to work through these problems. We'll see if it makes a difference. We'll see if they then come up with something substantial by February. So... Those are all the riders switching to new manufacturers for next season. We already discussed the only rookie in the field for 2023, along with every single manufacturer and what they brought to the table and some of my opinions on whether I think they're on the right track or not. And for a couple, whether they should be panicking or not. That was the Valencia test. What's up next? Your comments and some potentially interesting upcoming news stories. Uh, on the next episode, we're going to discuss what you had to say over the past week or so. And then we're also going to talk about the idea that Valentino Rossi may be doing some testing for Ducati heading into the 2023 season, although we don't have any specifics on that. We do, however, have specifics on Pedro Acosta getting his first shot to ride a MotoGP bike. That's going to be alongside Danny Pedrosa next Monday. So we've got a little bit of MotoGP news and a lot of your comments coming up on the next show. I don't want you to miss that show. So if you haven't done it yet, I would highly recommend you subscribe to the program. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Player.fm, Spotify, iHeartRadio, 
Audible podcasts. Basically go to any major, most of the minor podcasting sites, type in Moto Week. You should be able to find the show. You can always get the latest episodes on the website at motoweek.net. You can follow on Twitter at MotoWeek and on Instagram at MotoWeekUSA. And one way or the other, after you listen to the show, make sure you comment on it. On Facebook at facebook.com slash motoweek.net or over on the Reddit sub at r slash motoweek. And if you do want to support the program, don't feel obligated, but you can do it on Patreon at patreon.com slash motoweek. And links to everything I just talked about are on the website at motoweek.net. All right. So until we talk again, just a couple of days from now, I want to thank you so much for listening. Ride safe and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.